This is the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of plantyourself.com, the big change program with Josh Lajani and WellStart Health. This podcast is part of my mission to help you live an empowered and empathetic life. So today's episode brings me back to the old days of the podcast. Before I had a schedule, before I had any sort of protocols, I would just interview someone. I'd be so excited that I would throw the interview up right there and then let everybody know about it. And that's what happened today. I interviewed Matthew Prescott this morning at 11 o'clock my time. It's now 5.30 in the evening, and this baby is going up because it was so much fun. It's such an important conversation, and it's really timely. Matthew's book, Food is the Solution, just came out last week, and let's get that baby to the top of Amazon. Let's get it to the top of Costco. Yes, apparently it's in every Costco store in the nation, so that'll kind of be a big deal if it sells out there. But we'll talk about that during the interview itself. Before we get to the interview, just one quick thing, which is very self-serving. And that is, I would love it if you could check out wellstarthealth.com. That's my new startup. I've joined Josh Lajani and Olivia Kelly and Dr. Boyana Yankovic-Weatherly. And we've got this amazing opportunity to bring plant-based nutrition to healthcare, to employers, to employees, to to basically take the big change program and expand it by a, a factor of a hundred or a thousand or more. And as you'll hear in the podcast, a lot of people, a lot of companies, a lot of organizations are beginning to go plant-based, not for any sort of moral or ethical imperative, but simply because it's more efficient, it's cheaper, it's better for them, it's better for their supply chains. And so we've got this incredible logic on our side that we just have a better product. And when you talk about healthcare, and when you talk about the way we're prescribed drugs for chronic diseases that could be prevented and reversed with a lifestyle that includes plant-based nutrition and you know good vigorous movement and mindfulness practices, and the fact that we're throwing billions and billions of dollars at this problem at the wrong level with treatments that manage it but don't resolve it, well, we have a better product. So if you know anyone who could bring us in for a conversation about whether we can lower their healthcare costs, whether we could make their employees healthier. I'm actually thinking of it like healthcare for companies is a huge money suck. It's a huge black hole in which they pay more and more every year for insurance and they get less and less. And health insurance and healthcare should be a profit center. It should be just like any other investment in your business that you put money in and more money comes out because you're now better able to provide the products and services. You're better, better able to compete. So that's that's our vision at WellStart Health. So if you could kind of uh, bird dog for us a little bit and help us get off the ground, that would just be amazing. It would be uh, a huge favor to me. As you know, this podcast is completely free. I don't sell stuff. I don't take affiliate commissions on stuff. This is all labor of love. And if you've benefited from this labor of love over the last weeks, months, and years, it would be a great way to give back to uh, help us get this uh, startup off the ground so that we can become a going concern and so that we can help to change the world. Thank you so much. And speaking of changing the world, let's talk about my guest, Matthew Prescott. Matthew is one of the most influential voices on the planet in the animal welfare and plant forward movement. He's senior food director for the Humane Society of the United States, and he's an advisor to the Good Food Institute, 
And he's both contributed to and harnessed the stunning rapid change in public perception and habits about reducing animal consumption by helping giant food companies alter and improve their supply chains. So on the ground, shirt sleeves rolled up in the trenches, getting giant companies to take actions that reduce animal food consumption and animal suffering in a big way. And now he's pulled off a really unlikely achievement. He's produced this beautiful, inspiring coffee table book about environmental degradation. It's a manifesto for eating less meat that features quotes by Emeril Lagasse and Wolfgang Puck. It's a meticulously referenced wonky policy statement that's also a gorgeous cookbook. It's got quotes by the leaders of the world's major environmental groups, It's got stories by actors and directors. It's got quotes by Pope Francis, Bill Gates, Barack Obama, Jamie Oliver, Martha Stewart. And yet the book is not about them. It's not about the wealthy or the powerful or the influential. The real protagonists of Food is the Solution are the vulnerable and the voiceless. And Matthew has done an amazing job in recruiting the voices of the powerful and the wealthy and the influential to provide a platform to pass the mic, as it were, to those who can't speak for themselves, to the humans and the animals and the planet itself that are suffering as a result of our addiction to eating animal products. And a quick technical note, we recorded this in video as well. So if you'd like to see our shiny smiling faces, you can go check out the Plant Yourself YouTube channel or just go to the show notes for today's episode and find a link or watch it right there embedded at plantyourself.com. And the link for today is plantyourself.com slash 260. Okay, let's get this thing underway. Without further ado, Matthew Prescott, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me on. It's great to be here. Yeah, so you just uh, released this book, I guess, last last week, right? It's, it's, it's a week old. It's called Food is the Solution, What to Eat to Save the World. So congratulations on getting that out there. Thanks so much. Yeah, you know, I've been working on it for the last couple of years. It's great to actually see it out in the world now in people's hands and on bookshelves and um, you know, getting photos of people who went, you know, went out to a store and bought it and are, you know, tagging me in photos online, which is really cool to see. Mm-hmm. So um, why did you write it there? You know, there's so many there's so many books out there about environment, about food, about plant based. What did you see as the the hole that you wanted to fill with this volume? <clears throat> yeah, what I really wanted to do is to produce something that was visually appealing Pack full of information, but also a useful cookbook that people could actually hold in their hands. They could use it, could cook from to provide, you know, delicious plant based recipes that help create a better world. And, you know, specifically, I wanted to create something that invoked a lot of different voices on the issue. And so that's why we see in there, you know, essays from people like James Cameron, the film director and Jesse Eisenberg, but also from the heads of major environmental organizations, um, Maria Sue, the president of Natural Resources Defense Council, the NRDC, has an essay in there. Uh, celebrity chef Jose Andreas has one. Bruce Hamilton, the executive director of the Sierra Club, is in there. So I want to create something that just pulled together lots of different voices, almost kind of like an anthology, and um, was at the same time something useful that people could cook from. Yeah, so you, you caused a problem for me in, my, in terms of my library because I have my, like, my, you know... <laughs> my content library behind me, and then I have the cookbooks in, in, you know, near the kitchen. And I don't know where to put this. Yeah, you know, it's, um, I kind of call it like half cookbook, half manifesto. 
you know, the whole front matter for anybody who hasn't seen the book, the whole, you know, kind of first quarter or half of the book is full of essays and infographics, environmental photography, um, you know, some narrative content that I've written. And then the second half of the book is all recipes and food photos. <clears throat> so I would say, you know, most people are kind of classifying it as a cookbook, but, um, you yeah, maybe just jump in between your shelves. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's a, you know, it's, it's maybe like a new, a new classification, a new way to think about, because you, you, what you talk about in the book is these <clears throat> vast, gigantic, daunting problems. And you, you, like I say, like the solution is like, let's have like buckwheat blueberry pancakes. Like there's, there's, there's leverage that comes from our daily small actions that, um, that can be really meaningful. Yeah, you know, I want to show people that the power really is on our plates, that when we sit down to eat, you know, three times a day, breakfast, lunch, dinner, we make choices and we can choose foods that have a negative impact on the world around us, on our health, on animals, or we can choose food that have a positive impact. And so, you know, making a change for the environment or for animal protection or for our own health, it really can be as simple as just, you know, enjoying a plant-based meal once a day or twice a day or three times a day if you want to go fully plant-based. And hopefully my book you know, offers resources and recipes to help people make those decisions. All right. So let's, we'll, we'll get into the book. But first, I want to you know, kind of hear a little bit about you and your story. I know you said you, you became, <clears throat> um, you were introduced to vegetarianism by your sister whom you teased mercilessly. Can you take, take <laughs> us through kind of your, your own evolution? Yeah, you know, when I was 12, my sister came home from school one day and she just kind of proclaimed herself a vegetarian. And I'd never even heard the word before, let alone met a vegetarian. I had no idea what to make of it. And so you're right, I would, you know, put my steak on the end of my fork and stick it in her face and make a mooing sound. Just, you know, total classic little brother moves. Um, anybody who's had a little brother or has been a little brother, I'm sure knows what I'm talking about. But so I, I, hope, I hope she she never lets you forget that. No, of course not. Of course not. Um, you know, my, my mother was a little bit more accommodating though. And so if she was making a pot of, you know, beef chili for us, she'd have a pot of bean chili next to it for my sister. If she was grilling hamburgers for us, she'd have a veggie burger grilling for my sister. And so I just started to try some of these new foods and I actually liked them. You know, at the time I, I did not consider myself a vegetarian though. I would put bacon on a black bean burger. If I had a bean burrito for lunch, I'd make sure to have chicken for dinner. But eventually I started to learn more about the reasons for my sister's decision. I started to learn more about the impact that animal agriculture has on the planet and on animals and on our health. And I moved in that direction, adopting a fully plant-based diet um, almost 20 years ago now. And, you know, I've made, you know, not just life decisions that have impacted my own diet, but also have tried to make it into a career to promote healthier, more sustainable eating, to create a better food supply, you know, whether through writing this book or through my work at, at animal protection organizations, um, just trying to spread the word that, you know, if we want to save the world, the number one thing we can do is just eat more plants and less meat. Mm. See, I, I find your, the story really interesting because, you know, I'm in the health field and I try to, you know, behavior change. I try to get people to change behaviors. And so I tend to focus on health, thinking that people are very self-interested. And the, the, re the reason I'm, in I'm interested in your story is that we have kind of a parallel track where I first went plant-based around 1990 after reading um, John Robbins' Diet for a New America. Shortly Great after book. My, fa my father died of a heart attack. <clears throat> and, at, and so it's rough, like, roughly 
you know, I guess it's our 30 years ago now. Yeah, wow. Um, but it didn't stick. Like a few years later, I remember, like not, I remember not remembering that I'd read that book and I was like back. And so like my own journey around health, it, it feels like I had a lot more backtracking and sliding around the issue than you have. And you, it seems like you tackled it for, for ethical reasons principally. Yeah, that's right. You know, it just kind of stuck for me. Um, what I think did it for me early on, honestly, was a video of a slaughterhouse. I, you know, I'd never been an, an animal protection activist or anything of that nature at all, but I always loved animals. I always had a connection with them. When we were little, we had dogs and cats at home. And, you know, I love them dearly, like, you know, most people do with pets at home. But I, I felt a real bond with them. And so when I saw you know, it was sometime after my sister had gone vegetarian and I just kind of stumbled onto this video of a slaughterhouse. You know, I thought about my own animals at home and I thought, oh, wow, I would have nothing to do with this like this. I get it now. Um, you know, from there, I learned more about the environmental impact of animal agriculture. And it's crazy how to make protein, we grow crops and then funnel them through animals as a middleman and then kill the animals and eat their protein. Like the animals, the middleman between the crops we grow to feed them and the protein they produce to feed us and it's just super inefficient. And that's why, you know, animal agriculture now causes more greenhouse gas emissions, every car, truck, plane, ship and train in the world combined um, because it's just so inefficient to funnel all that food through animals to make a lesser amount of food. Um, so I came at it through that perspective, through wanting to protect animals, through wanting to protect the environment. Of course, the health angle ended up being of huge benefit to me. Once I got animal products out of my system and was eating more plant-based foods, I did learn more about, you know, how I was protecting my heart by doing so, how I was, you know, preventing diabetes and stroke and, and heart disease and just so many other ailments that are related to overconsumption of meat products. And, um, you know, so it's really a, a holistic move to eat more plant-based foods where you can just, to use a bad analogy here, you can just kind of strike all these birds with one stone. <laughs> there are so many bad analogies that, that we have to deal with as plant-based eaters yeah. and vegans, isn't there? Yeah, you, I should say like you can pluck three carrots with one hand or something. Right, there's more than one way to, never mind. Right? <laughs> so, I mean, when you talk about that holistic aspect, so you have a photograph um, of, a, of a feed yard in Texas on page 1617, and I'll just, I'll just hold it up, I'm sure you know, know it very, very yeah. well. It kind of looks like like a, a scar on the land with like a pussy sore on it. And it's like, when you talk about holistically, it's like, this is what we're eating. We're, we're eating, uh, we're eating disease. Right. And yeah, course, you, you know, that photo came from a, a great artist. That photo came from a great artist named uh, Mishka Henner, who did a series of aerial photos of feedlots, cattle feedlots um, from above and that kind of green, pussy, boil-looking thing in the middle, that's a, a manure lagoon. That's where all the you know, tens of thousands of animals waste their filters into. And then from there, you know, it soaks into the ground or it may run off into water. Um, it's just really toxic. And you're right, you know, we are what we eat. And when we eat these products, we're kind of eating that toxic system um, of you know, not only animal abuse and not only you know, creating unhealthy products, but creating products that are unhealthy for the land, that are unhealthy for the planet. And, um, you know, it's my book really is just about kind of reducing our impact, reducing the amount of those types of toxic things we're eating by just eating more plants, you know, much cleaner, 
um, you know, much less toxic. No manure lagoons, fortunately, you know, when you're growing broccoli. Right. Yeah. We, we have a, you know, nice big garden out back and people, when it's, you know, it's, it's uh, March now, nothing's really much growing, but, you know, in a couple of months people will go there and they'll be drawn to it. Like, this is a nice place to be. I want to put a chair here and just look at it. I want to walk, uh, you know, among the, 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 the beans and the tomatoes and the, and the basil. And it's just, it's very like our human organism is drawn to it. It's like naturally attractive. Yeah, that's right. You know, there's um, you know, something in our biology. Think I think about being drawn toward colorful plants and, there's a theory that the reason why humans, for example, think that flowers are pretty and vibrant colors are pretty is because in nature, that would mean there's fertile land growing things that could possibly be food, um, you know, growing flowering plants and other type of vegetation that we could eat. And so that's why we're drawn toward it. Nobody's drawn to a chicken factory farm in the same way. Nobody's drawn to a fish factory farm you know, where you've got tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of animals crammed into cages or onto feedlots. Um, you know, nobody looks at that and thinks that's pretty. I want to eat that. And so, yeah, I think there's um, something behind that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I can see why, why you talked about you wanting the book to be visually appealing. Um, you know, it's quite it's quite beautiful. I was I was wondering, like, you know, the the photos are matte, so I, I assume there's like environmental consideration that went into the the ink and the and the paper. Yeah, you know, yeah, definitely. And, you know, I I wanted to um, make something that is visually appealing, but not gross. And so, you know, what you don't see in the book are like, you know, slaughterhouse pictures and and disturbing factory farm photos. There's nothing like that in there because it is a cookbook and, you know, hopefully people are, you know, cooking it and using it when they eat. Instead, I opted for kind of environmental photography. You know, you showed one example. That one is not super pleasant, but it's not, you know, it's not totally hideous to look at. You know, other photos just kind of depict, um, you know, the, the change in landscape that factory farms cause. They depict the, um, you know, change in waterways that they cause. And, you know, hopefully through that kind of visual aspect can you know, bring people into the issue a little bit more. Right. And w- one of the things I found really um, beautiful and something that I've seen and experienced is, say, when people allow themselves to eat more plants, to become more... Um, compassionate towards animals is that spills over into this wide array of other social issues, xenophobia, homophobia, racism, sexism. Um, what, what have you seen or experienced that leads you to, to that understanding? Yeah. You know, I think that, you know, we humans are an incredible species. Um, we're very unique within the animal kingdom. Um, you know, we've got a spark of imagination and creativity that's probably unparalleled among other animals. There's so much about us that's unique to us, but at the same time, we share so much in common with other animal species, Um, you know, joy, communication, play. Chickens communicate with complex vocalizations, just like we do. Fish can learn and use tools. And I think that if we can learn to focus on the ways in which we're similar with other species rather than our differences, we can create a kinder and more compassionate world by extending our circle of compassion. You know, so what if a fish was born with gills instead of lungs? Or so what if a chicken was born with wings instead of arms? If we can uh, focus so deeply on the ways in which we're similar, not different from others, I think it'll spill over to how we treat each other. 
you know, so somebody was born a woman instead of a man or black instead of white or in the Middle East instead of America. Um, let's, you know, completely flip the script and rather than just focus on, on our differences, focus on our similarities. Mm. And it's interesting because, you know, in, in one sense, the concentric circles you would think would would have humans closer to us and animals farther away. Like we'd have to learn how to get along with humans before we got along with chickens and cows. But humans love animals, don't we? Like I never, I never saw a kid that was like, you know, yuck, cows. Like, you know, we go moo and like, how, what does the giraffe say or whatever? Like we are, we are drawn to appreciate and love and, and want to connect with animals like well before we want to connect with other <laughs> lots of other humans. Yeah, you know, I think that we, you know, we do naturally share a bond with animals, with other animal species. Um, you know, people rush into disaster zones, into flood zones and earthquake zones to rescue animals. Soldiers on the battlefield will rescue animals in need. We band together with total strangers to help, you know, a beached whale or an, an orphaned wild animal. We do share that bond and we do want to help animals naturally. At the same time, you know, other animal species don't cause us the same kind of problems that our fellow humans can. They don't cause wars. They aren't causing political strife with us. They aren't causing, you know, relationship strife or family strife or anything like that. Any kind of the interpersonal problems that we humans experience with one another, animals are doing that for us. And so I think it's easier in a way to connect with them for some people. But I do think that if we can... Start there. Start with the beings who are most unlike ourselves, the ones who are born with gills instead of lungs or wings instead of arms. Then it will become easier to widen that circle of compassion to include our fellow humans. Mm, that's lovely. Um, so you have the the non-cookbook chapters uh, are divided into a, sort of an introduction and then earth, water, air, and fire. And they, they tend, the chapters start with like, an underdog story, right? What, what was, so the, so the first one is um, for Earth is this community, a uh, very historic, bucolic community that uh, ba- banded together to defeat the uh, uh, CAFO, the uh, is it con- confined animal, f- I forget what CAFO is. Yeah, yeah, feeding operation, yeah. Feeding operation. Um, why did you want to start with, with these sort of stories of sort of underdogs and some of them win and, and some of them in other chapters don't uh, what was what was your what, what was the angle in in beginning with those stories yeah you know i think with environmental problems which is really the focus of the book in a lot of ways it's easy to think of the issues like climate change for example as purely global in nature when in reality environmental problems affect us every day in our local communities now, I met a woman who I write about in the book, um, in the chapter about uh, air quality, named Lisa. And you know, she and her husband, Joe, live on land on the eastern shore of Maryland that's part, part of their family for four generations. Totally normal neighborhood in most ways, like split-level homes, toys in the front yard, basketball hoops in the driveway. But when you drive through there, um, you, know, you see kind of peppered throughout the neighborhood every four, five, ten houses – there's a massive shed containing tens of thousands of chickens. And so Lisa and, and her husband, Joe, and their neighbors, they're being pushed out of their community by these birds, by these factory farms. And it takes a terrible toll on them. There's you know hordes of flies in the air. You know When I visited her last year out at, at, at her property, you know, I saw buzzards flying overhead ready to pick off dead birds along the side of the road. 
Um, you know, she said some days she can barely go outside because the smell is so bad or because the flies are so bad. And so these environmental problems, it's not just climate change, some far off thing that's kind of, you know, a little bit hard to picture. These are real problems impacting the air, impacting the water, impacting the land in our communities right here at home. Um, you know, not in places like New York City or where I live necessarily in the heart of Austin, Texas, but you know, you drive to rural areas in America and they're facing, you know, real dangers and real detriments because of our overconsumption of animal proteins. Yeah, as I was reading those chapters and those those parts, I was thinking like what I was trying to figure out how I would respond to it if I were still part of the problem. Or, I mean, I, I, you know, I know I am part of the problem because I have, you know, electricity and, and all that. But, you know, like the, the parts of the problem that I'm conscious of. Um, yeah, uh, you know, you know I, I wrote the book really for people who do eat meat and dairy and eggs. And, of course, you know, all the recipes in there are, are vegan plant-based recipes. And so, you know, I'm sure, you know, vegans, the vegetarians will love it. And, you know, I've heard great feedback from those folks so far, but you know, really the people I want to reach the most are the people who are continuing to eat these products who are omnivores. And the message in the book is simple. It's, you know, if, if you're not ready to go hundred percent vegan, if you're not ready to go hundred percent plant-based, at least start eating more of these foods. If for no other reason, because there's great food out there that you might not have otherwise tried, you know, before I was a vegan eating a plant-based diet, I never even heard of products like nutritional yeast, which I now love and eat all the time. I probably wouldn't have touched tofu with a 10-foot pole, or let alone tempeh or seitan. <laughs> you know, there's a whole array of kind of culinary options out there that if you open yourself up to, you know, you'll find are wonderful, great taste, great texture, available everywhere, affordable. And, you know, whether or not, you know, somebody adopts a fully plant-based diet, um, I just think that there's, you know, a great array of plant-based foods that everybody can enjoy. Mm. So that, that combination of a push and a pull, like when you, you know, as, as a as a meat eater, as a chicken eater, if I were to read that chapter, I would feel bad, you know, pr- precisely because Lisa and her husband, they, they, they kind of they kind of look like me in a in a very sort of superficial, selfish way, like, oh, like suburban white folks, <laughs> you know, like there's something crazy in my brain that goes, oh, that could be me. That's terrible. And and now you're going to give me you know buckwheat waffles and uh, and uh, you know straw cherry chia uh, toaster tarts. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You know, it, it is really amazing how there are such grave problems facing our country and facing the world, environmentally, socially, politically, and the solution to a lot of these problems comes through food. You know, what we eat is really an extension of what it is to be human. And I think that if we can fundamentally change our relationship with our food by focusing you know, more on plant-based foods and less on animals, we can elevate our own humanity. And at the same time, we can improve conditions for our, our neighbors who, you know, maybe not our literal neighbors, but our, our neighbors, um, you know, living in suburban areas that are impacted by factory farms. We can improve conditions for the planet, for animals. Um, you know, food, as the book title says, really is the solution. Mm-hmm. Right. It, it really helps me to hear you say specifically that you wrote the book for omnivores, for uh, for, for meat eaters, because um, I've got to I've got to be honest, like I, I love the book and I love the message. And I found myself having this internal debate with myself, like different parts of myself around things like, you know, meatless Mondays and 
some part of me was like, yeah, we need people to take that first step, that first commitment, that first change in identity. And part of me was going, look, the problem is so great. It's like, you know, we're just asking people to downshift from fifth to fourth gear as they head towards the cliff. And I'm wondering if, if you have like like part of me wanted to come here and have like this nasty debate with you. <laughs> you know, and I'm wondering and and I'm wondering if you have those voices inside yourself around tactics and timing and strategy and urgency. You know, I think I don't honestly. I think in years past, maybe I did. Um, I've been, you know, plant based advocate and activist now, full time professionally for almost twenty years. And um, you know, I think you know when I was younger and earlier on in my days, I probably did have that debate a lot. Or actually, I probably didn't have the debate. I probably was just like totally set on you know one path being the only you know the righteous way. And now I think that you know people. Uh, you know, food is really wrapped up in a lot of things for different people. It's wrapped up in religion. It's wrapped up in family. It's wrapped up in tradition and history. And, you know, most people aren't going to totally overhaul their diets overnight. More power to the people who do. I certainly did. You know, lots of people do. Other people are going to come to the table a little bit more slowly or a little bit more piecemeal through things like Meatless Monday um, or, you know, even just eating smaller portions of meat or moving meat from the center of the plate to the side of the plate. And, I think there's a seat at the table, no pun intended. I think there's a seat at the table for everybody, uh, regardless of where they are on the spectrum. You know, hopefully the people who come into it through, you know, program like Meatless Monday will discover plant-based foods that they love that they never would have thought to try and then want to eat more of them and then do Meatless Monday and Tofu Tuesday and, I don't know, Wasabi Wednesday or whatever it is. Um, <laughs> and I think that does tend to be the case is that people, a lot of people come to this issue kind of more slowly and then ramp up their diet. And, and you know, that's my hope. And, I think we're seeing it play out in in, um, in the general public. So I'm real curious about your personal development there because you know I just I'm I'm in my you know early to mid fifties and I just copped to having you know this this part of myself that feels very judgy and and immature in that <laughs> you know all it wants to do is is be right and make other people wrong as opposed to help. And it sounds like you, you just that's how you described yourself in your early days. Maybe you're, you know, since you're plant based, I don't know if you're 40 or 90 because, you know, <laughs> I'm 110. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, but like what sort of internal journey did you have to go on in order to to reach the, your, your current state of like, you know, hopeful positivity? Yeah, well, you know, I think that there's um, there's a lot of research behind kind of the ideas of change behavior. There's a lot of social science that exists around how people make decisions and change their mind and change their behaviors. And, um, you know, I, I read a lot of that research. I've, I've followed some of the social science, you know, pretty closely. And for me, it's just a matter of what has been demonstrated to work versus what has been demonstrated to not work when it comes to, um, you know, creating change behavior or moving somebody toward a, a dietary change or any other kind of lifestyle change. And what all the social science says is what doesn't work is prescribing or dictating that somebody do something you want them to do. All the science says that what does work is offering people options and letting them kind of get their foot in the door and then, you know, decide what works for them. And more often than not, once people kind of take a first step towards something, they'll make bigger and better moves in that direction. But sometimes it takes a little while. And so, you know, I just kind of follow the science on it. And the science shows, 
you know, help guide people along by giving them options and then kind of let, you know, let nature take its course, so to speak. I met somebody the other day who um, said to me, they were like, you know, I could be totally vegan except for bacon. I love bacon. And so, you know, I said to them, then be vegan except for bacon. Eat 100% vegan everywhere you go out to eat, everything you buy in the grocery store, except for bacon. Um, you know, my guess is if somebody actually does that, they'll probably, uh, you know, kick the bacon habit eventually once they try all the great plant-based bacons that are out there or other plant-based proteins in general. But, um, but you know, it, purity shouldn't be an impediment to anybody kind of lending a hand and a fork to this movement. Um, you know, people shouldn't have to worry, I, I don't think, about whether they're entirely pure in one direction in order to participate in this transformation that we want to happen. Mm. I, I kind of want to push you a little bit on that answer. Go for it. Push, push it, yeah. Because your answer was, I looked at the research and I decided strategically that this was a better way to be. So I personally can look at research and go, oh, this is a better way for me to be and not be it. Like, <laughs> like so I'm wondering, like, was there, was there some sort of internal, you know, growth or transformation that had to take place to support it? Because, like, I'm just, I'm just trying to imagine what it would be like to look at facts and then change my my behavior based on those facts in a rational way as opposed to like thrashing and struggling and and be you know having a tremendous amount of pain that that forces me to change. Yeah, you know, I think I just looked at my I mean on top of the research I think for me the change that happened was I just kind of took notice of of what was happening around me in my own life and the people who I was impacting or not impacting people in my family um you know friends of mine who are omnivores, you know, some of them still, um, you know, continue to be omnivores, but have, are eating less meat than they ever were in the past or, you know, are more opened up to the idea of plant-based eating. And, you know, I think about the people who I, I, I think I've kind of brought along toward plant-based eating. It's probably, it's not the people who I, you know, yelled and screamed at in my younger years. Um, it's the people who, you know, I kind of welcomed with open arms wherever they were on the spectrum. And so, the research when I started looking into it, it just made sense to click because that's kind of the experience that I had in my own life. You know, at the same time, I just think that we're, you know, we're a movement founded on ideals of compassion and kindness and mercy and the type of golden rule, you know, treat others as you want to be treated. And I think when, when we as advocates behave in that way toward other people, um, you know, you get a lot more flies with honey, basically. Mm. All right. <laughs> give it a give it a go. Give give kindness a go. I bet you. I I, I bet it'll be effective. <laughs> yeah. No. I, I mean, I I definitely you know I definitely can do it. And no, no. I'm only kidding. You're, you seem like a great guy. I'm sure you do it all the time. You know, I'm I'm sure that when you're you know talking to your family members and your friends, you're not you know yelling and screaming and spitting in their face. Um, you know, I've, I've I've known you for all of a few minutes, but I can tell you're not that kind of guy. Right. But I keep. But it's partly because I keep it under control. <laughs> well, hey, whatever works, right? Right. <laughs> um, so there's a couple of of statistics that you had here that I actually didn't believe, and I had to go look up and do research on my own because they just seemed so outlandish. Um, and they were right. So um, <laughs> I'm so glad to hear the, that. Yeah, you had this um, um, this dairy. I can't remember exactly where. Maybe in Arkansas, where there were 7,800 cows, so just under 8,000 cows, and you said they produce. 314 million pounds of manure per year. So I did the math. I, I couldn't use my calculator because it didn't go up that far. I had to go onto Google to, to get all the digits in. 
And it says that that means the average cow produces like a, over 100 pounds of manure per day, which seemed ridiculous until I went to the USDA website and discovered that that's actually low ball. It's more like 120. Um, I don't even I don't even know what to what to say about that. But like as you were researching the book, did you did you find that like this is there were stuff you couldn't believe? Yeah, there were. You know, I I encountered a stat showing that it takes 53 gallons of water to produce a single egg when you factor in the crops grown to feed the chickens, the water that the chickens drink, all of that combined. It takes 53 gallons of water to produce a single egg. And, you know, that kind of statistic at first when I read it, I was like, wait, can that be right? God, that is so high. But, you know, I I did the due diligence and I dug into all of the stats in the book. Um, They're all cited, of course, as you saw, there are citations for every fact and figure and assertion and claim and number and everything in the book that could possibly be refuted. I provided citations for and um, lo and behold, 53 gallons of water produce a single egg. Lo and behold, at least 100 pounds of manure per cow per day. Um, You know, animals produce an incredible amount of waste and it takes an incredible amount of resources to produce protein from them. And when you dig into the math a little bit, you find that it's just, um, you know, a disturbing quantity of resources and waste that that occurs from this system. You know, another thing that I tried to do when writing the book was I tried to be conservative. I tried to err on the side of conservatism when 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 publishing stats and figures and assertions, because I didn't want to give, you know, the meat and the dairy and the egg industries or their lobbyists or, you know, their spokespeople anything to tear the book apart with. And so, you know, 120 pounds of manure per cow per day, I toned it down a little bit. You know, a lot of advocates might tone it up a little bit. I said, okay, let's round down to 100, um, you know, because I don't want to give anybody any excuse to say, oh, this book's got faulty information and everything's rock solid and, you know, could withstand any challenge from the Cattlemen's Association or whoever might want to pick it apart. Well, you know, as the um, when I went online to look for corroboration for the data, I found it basically from industry. Right, because they're the ones who need to measure this stuff really carefully. Like, how do you get rid of 120 pounds of manure per day? Um, how do you, you know, deal with the, the water? Like, all these, all these stats are like, you know, sort of trades, open trade secrets of the industry, so that they can do business. Yeah, you know, a lot of my sources are the USDA, for example, United States Department of Agriculture. That dairy farm that you're talking about um, is in upstate New York. And when I was talking about the number of cows they have and the amount of manure and everything, that comes from I believe it was either the New York State Department of Environmental Protection or the New York um, State Department of Agriculture, one of the two. But these are state statistics, industry statistics. Um, and so I tried to pull from as much as I could the actual meat, dairy and egg industries or the departments of agriculture when um, you know, finding out all these facts. I just, you know, I, I don't want to pull from, you know, animal protection websites or resources. I want to kind of get it, you know, to use another animal analogy or pun from the horse's mouth. <laughs> right and, and and when I went to that website the USDA it was a it was a web a web page on manure management and one of the thing that shocked me was that this this article about manure management and all these you know numbers and and details also it had a section about language and it advised the livestock industry to avoid words like waste and garbage and instead, they recommend using more neutral and opaque terms like biosolids, byproducts, manure, and residuals. And I'm like, the government is doing that? 
Yeah, it's amazing. The, the industry, and including you know the government agencies that support the industry, go to really great lengths in the war of the words. Um, it's very Orwellian. It's like 1984 doublespeak. Mm. Um, you know, in the pork industry, there are a lot of kind of pork industry representatives who have decried the use of the term factory farm to describe pig farms. They say, oh, you know, individual families own some of these farms. That may be true. But, you know, there's still factory conditions. But the most amazing thing is when you look at back at pork industry publications, they're the ones that basically invented the term factory farm. In 1978, Hog Farm Management Magazine advised producers to, quote, treat the pig like a machine pumping out piglets in a factory. And that's from a 1978 Hog Farm Management article. And so now... Decades later, the industry or the ag department can say, oh, be you know, more gentle with your use of language. But when you look back at the historical record, they're the ones that were very clear what we're creating are factory farms. Mm. So, so I'm real familiar with the anti-plant-based health arguments, right? So every day someone will send me a new paleo or, or keto with video or something or article. And so after I do the ritual banging of the head against the wall, I'll either respond to it or not. I'm curious, I'm not very familiar with the anti-plant eating environmental arguments. So like, what, what's the, what is the best they've got? I don't really think they have anything, honestly, especially when you're talking about the idea of just eating more plant-based foods. I've yet to see a single argument out there from anybody, from any scientist, from any cattle rancher, from anybody that says, that we ought to be eating more meat and less plants, um, or at least any cogent argument. I mean, they might say that they want people to for business reasons because it's good for their business, but I've yet to see a single kind of credible scientific argument saying more plants, I mean, I'm sorry, more meat, less plants. It just, it doesn't exist. Right. But in, in the absence of that, so what what do they say? What What is the, because I read this book, I'm like, duh. And like, okay, you know, Put a put a period at the end of the sentence. Let's all let's all fix it. But clearly, there are powerful, moneyed, deep-pocketed, entrenched political and economic and social interests that want to, if not argue with everything, at least kind of orthogonally dismiss it and make us forget that we ever heard it. Like, what are their ta- what are their tactics that that seem to be holding the line? I, you know, I would say whatever their tactics are, they're not working because I'm not aware of any kind of even remotely cogent argument in favor of eating more meat, whether from a health perspective or from an environmental perspective. Um, if they're if they're making those arguments publicly, I don't know where they're doing it. Um, they need a better PR person or a better spokesperson, at least, because they're not um, I don't think they're reaching people in the same way that the arguments in favor of eating more plant based foods are. You know, you can't go a day without seeing, you know, in your, your inbox may be a little bit different, but, you know, if you go on Google News or you read the newspaper, you can't go a day without seeing an article about, you know, um, you know some notable person adopting a plant-based diet or a new study about the benefits of a plant-based diet or, you know, new scientists calling on, you know, greater focus on plant-based foods to prevent climate change, whereas, you know, arguments to the contrary just don't seem to be making their way into the public space. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll give you an example. So I posted, uh, I can't even remember what I posted on Facebook. It was my, my usual, you know. And a friend of mine, smart guy, um, posted, um, you know, well, that's true of factory farms, but, you know, grass-fed, like you can do sustainable animal agriculture. 
And so, like, there's there's an entire, like, the argument is, you know, if everyone went like Joel Salatin and Polyface Farm, then the earth would be a paradise. Um, you know, I mean, the, the problems with that, of course, is like, great, then we'll each eat, a, you know, like three pounds of meat a year on average, and things will be much better. But in fact, it's not the case. But, but like, that's the sort of thing I hear is these, these straw man arguments that, that argue from kind of a best case scenario and then try to take the, the feet out of the whole plant-based environmental movement. Yeah, you know, I think people will kind of attack and tear down ideas that they just don't like or that are inconvenient for them. Um, if somebody has an interest in continuing to eat meat because they like the taste of it or it's convenient or it's just what they've always done, I think they're going to, you know, a lot of the times find arguments to tear it down. I used to work with a guy who um, he was in the military and there were some vegans in his mess hall every day and he really didn't like them. And so he picked up every book he could find on veganism on plant-based eating, on animal rights, on all of these issues, and he read them so that he could counter the vegans' arguments, so that he could have debates with them and, and push back and, and win arguments against plant-based eating. You know what? He ended up becoming vegan himself because he realized when he read these books, he was like, there's no argument against this. There's no valid argument. And so, you know, if you can't beat him, join him, I guess. Um, but yeah, people will, you know, people will come out with all kinds of crazy stuff to defend a position that they want to defend. I think you know, fortunately, though, most people are malleable in their views to a degree. And that's why we do see a lot more people now eating this stuff. Um, you know, in 2014, packaged foods labeled vegan grew at 15 percent in the marketplace, whereas animal protein products grew at only half that rate. So plant-based protein is, you know, taking off like wildfire in grocery stores and on restaurant menus because more and more and more people are getting the arguments and are eating. And so, you know, if there's a battle going on there between arguments, uh, we're definitely winning it. Cool. Um, and yet at the same time, like you talked about these uh, these chicken factories and the and the CAFOs, that if they're not, going, you know, if one community wins, there's always going to be some other community where where they're going to be. Placed. Um, so in the in the in the air chapter, you talk about there's another statistic <clears throat> I found just unbelievably galling is that the the rate of growth of these baby chicks is the equivalent to a 600 pound two month old human baby, and that they're dying of of, of broken bones and heart attacks at like as as babies as animal babies they're dying of heart attacks. Um, yeah, that statistic comes from the University of Arkansas, um, in, right in the heart of the poultry belt, if you will. Arkansas is one of the biggest, um, if not the biggest, poultry producing state in the country. And poultry industry researchers at University of Arkansas have written that if a human baby grew as fast as a chicken, she'd weigh 660 pounds at two months old, which is an unbelievable um, strain that's put on these animals' bodies. And that's why you do see these baby animals, you know, they're killed at only 45 to 50 days old. They're just babies. They're having heart attacks. Their lungs give out. Their legs break underneath them. Really hideous stuff um, that just shouldn't happen to any baby animal in nature. But we're just putting such genetic strain on their, you know, still developing skeletal systems and, and musculatures that they, they just can't take it. And they give out. Their bodies give out. And, you know, we've turned animals, you know, in a lot of ways into kind of um, at least chickens into frankenbirds totally unrecognizable to anything in nature um, just for the sake of creating a bigger breast, um, you know, so that we can have bigger breast meat. 
And so the solution to turning back the clock on this system, the solution to creating, you know, a, a healthier animals, to, um, you know, creating healthier communities lies with us. It isn't that the industry is just so evil that they want to push animals to their genetic limit and manipulate them and confine them. They're doing these things because there's a demand for the product. And so the less and less and less of those products that are demanded, the less of those products that are eaten, um, the less these things will occur. And so the solution is not just to kind of combat the factory farming industry, but to change our own diets. And, you know, hopefully, and that's why I wrote the book for omnivores, hopefully so that, you know, people, whether they continue eating chicken or they're currently eating chicken or dairy or eggs will realize that the power lies with them if, if we want to, you know, help solve some of these problems. Right. And it feels like, um, you know, at some, at some level, it's like, well, like you have the power to vote politicians out of office, but if you do the math, like you really don't. Right? So, <laughs> some people do. Yeah. Depending on where you live. Right. But, but, you know, basically your like your chance of casting the deciding vote is, is you know, you're better off playing the lottery. But there is something about an economic tipping point. Right. So that if, if when plant based eaters become like 16 percent of the population, I've heard like they like something, something huge flips. Yeah, you know, a lot of it comes down to business um, for the food industry, I think. And, you know, now with the technology that we have available today where we can make, you know, plant-based chicken without chickens, we can make, you know, burgers that are made from plants but have more protein than beef, we can make sausage without pigs. Um, You know, I think the industry, the food industry is starting to catch on to the fact that there are great products to be made and there's a lot of money to be made from them by focusing on plant-based proteins. You know, I think about examples like, um, you know, Netflix and Blockbuster Video. You know, there became a point where just more and more and more people realized, hey, why am I going to get up and drive to this video store on a Friday night if I want to watch a movie at home when I, hey, there's a new website I can just log on and just have it right on my computer. And eventually we reached such a tipping point in that area that, um, you know, Blockbuster Video folded; it no longer exists. Whereas Netflix, obviously, you know, virtually everybody has it and uses it. And I think the same will be true of plant-based foods. When people realize, oh my God, there's great foods out there that are affordable, that taste amazing, that are full of protein, that are healthier, that are better for animals, that are better for the planet, um, and they start eating more of this stuff, and companies start making more of it and make more profit from it, we're just going to reach that same kind of tipping point. Hmm. Um, so. One another statistic um, that I that I found galling was the the, the average distance from these CAFOs for um, upper class and lower class uh, communities. There was a a study that showed I can't I don't remember the the, the reference, but that uh, schools with with largely uh, minority students and with a high percentage on school lunch programs were like twice as close, like almost five miles away versus 11 miles away for, for more predominantly white, uh, wealthier communities. What's, what's going on there? Yeah, there's a real problem um, in America and, and elsewhere in the world um, called environmental racism. Um, justice advocates call it environmental racism or environmental classism, which basically means um, you know poorer communities and communities of color are much more likely 
to have, for example, factory farms in them. They're much more likely to have giant pig farms that are emitting huge amounts of waste that are making the air unbreathable, they're making the water undrinkable. And there are, you know, there's been all kinds of studies at the university level showing exactly what you've shown, that these facilities are typically much closer to poor communities and communities of color than they are to white communities and wealthier communities. Um, and I, I think a lot of it comes down to power dynamics. You know, disenfranchised communities can push back less against the creation of a giant pig factory farm in their backyard. Um, you know, they have fewer resources. They have less of a voice in the political system. And so, you know, I think the industry kind of preys upon that fact and sets up their operations in these type of disenfranchised communities. It's a really, um, you know, kind of sad and pathetic move on their part. Right. But, but, all this, but I'm in North Carolina, which is, you know, the, the, the pig farming capital of the world, probably, at least of the United States. And I'm far away, I think, from all those things. Like, I, I have to, like, you know, generate a social <clears throat> conscience to, to care because, like, my water seems fine. But you talk, you're right about when hurricanes hit that, like, we're, we all live downstream. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, when Hurricane Floyd hit in North Carolina, um, it took a tremendous toll on the entire state, not just on the communities where, you know, pig farms are located, but it polluted waterways all over the state. And, you know, impacted countless, countless people, countless families, um, you know, made their water undrinkable for long periods of time, just, you know, really decreased quality of life for a lot of people, not to mention, you know, all the pigs who were killed in the disaster as well, who were, you know, drowned basically when their facilities flooded. Um, but, you know, day to day, that, those are, that's when acute, you know, things happen like natural disasters, you know, people all across the country, all across the state can see those things every day, though. If you're living in the backyard of a chicken farm or you're living in the backyard of a pig farm, you're dealing with it. You're smelling the smell. You're breathing the air. You're, the flies are all over your house. You can't drink your water. And um, I think the, the less we eat products that come from those facilities, the less we eat meat and dairy and eggs, and the more we, we focus on plant-based foods, the better we can do for these types of disenfranchised people. Right. But, you know, the, so, but in those communities, like, the, the argument is, well, they produce jobs. <clears throat> So for North Carolina, the industry is so entrenched because of tax revenue and employment. And so, you know, are the people in those communities benefiting in some way, even is, you know, or are <clears throat> these like aut automatous uh, factories that actually don't have employment? Like what's what's the reality? Yeah, sure. So, so I mean, they do create jobs. That's definitely true. Um, they're not the best jobs. In fact, a lot of them are the worst jobs. Um, a chicken slaughterhouse, for example, has the highest turnover rate of any single place of employment in the entire country because they're just such terrible jobs. You know, you've got to work in low level lighting because the, the chickens are kind of frantic and flapping and keeping the lights up makes them even more frantic. You're dealing with animals who are pecking at you and scratching at you and making you sick because they're full covered in pathogens. Um, you know, it's dehumanizing to kill animals day after day after day, minute after minute. And, you know, it takes an emotional toll on people. So these places do create jobs. They tend to be terrible jobs. But I do get that in some communities, a job is a job and you got to get what you can get. At the same time, it's heartening to know that all across the country, in these rural communities where jobs are precious and where you know people would jump at the chance to have any kind of employment, they are pushing back against factory farms and slaughterhouses coming into their community. In Nebraska right now, there's a... Um, you know, talk about a new chicken slaughterhouse that's going to come into a really rural community and the residents 
many of whom are in need of jobs, are pushing back in a major way, you know, rallying the media, rallying local politicians, saying, we don't want this here. This is not what we want in our backyard. Mm. I'm, getting, I'm getting a little teary at this point, think, thinking about, like, like the, these fights. And I think it's because I've just finished reading about individual people and individual families and their stories. Like, this is touching me in a way that, a book, that books of statistics have not. So I guess I'm, uh, I'm human. Well, I mean, hey, mission accomplished for me that I'm, <laughs> um, you know, yeah, I, I think, you know, I didn't want to just create a book full of stats and figures and numbers. Um, you know, for me, I'm not a numbers guy. Um, you know, I'm not a math guy. It's kind of in one ear, not the other. And I have to do a lot of number crunching when I want to do math um, or I have to use, you know, some kind of online calculator or tool. Um, but what gets to me and, you know, a lot of other people are stories, stories of other people, stories of animals, um, you know, stories of. Uh, people who have changed their behaviors, people, stories of people who are fighting back against problems in their community like factory farms. And so, yeah, I set out to create something that just you know, gave voice to those people and gave uh, a voice to the people who are being impacted, gave a voice to the animals who are being impacted, gave a voice to the planet, which obviously can't speak for itself. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm glad at least for one person, for you, it, it seems to have worked. And, uh, you know, hopefully other people will kind of find it impactful also. Yeah, and you talked about you know the the, uh, the range of voices that you wanted to include in the book, and you know so I, like certainly this the book feels a little bit like what I've been hearing um, that's really been touching me lately about the, uh, the the students who survived that school shooting in Florida, um, largely you know upper middle class white kids mostly who are like consciously giving voice <clears throat> to black urban communities and, and sort of passing the mic. And it feels like that's what this book has done because, like, the first thing I noticed is all the celebrities who are who are lending voice to this book. Like, I, I've got to know, like, how did you get Pamela <clears throat> Anderson, Keegan Michael Key, Pee Wee Herman, and Hall <laughs> frontman Ian Anderson to endorse this book? Yeah, you know, I mean, there are a lot of great people who lent their voice to it. Um, you know, you've got on the kind of vegetarian, plant-based, vegan side of the celebrity spectrum, you've got people like Moby and, and Pam Anderson and, um, you know, other folks who are kind of, you know, Dr. Michael Greger, people who are known to be advocates of plant-based eating. But then on the other side, you've got, you know, yeah, people like Keegan-Michael Key, the comedian from Key and Peele. Um, you've got people like Dr. Oz and, and chefs even like Wolfgang Puck and Emerald Lagasse, you know, meat heavy, dairy heavy, egg heavy chefs who have endorsed the book, who provided quotes for it. Um, you know, Chef Jose Andreas, who you know cooks with a lot of meat, provided an essay in the book, an original essay. Um, you know, people like Jesse Eisenberg, not a, be, uh, not a vegan, um, put an essay in the book. And I think the reason why I was successful in garnering those voices for the book is because it is. It makes the. It makes an argument that everybody can support, which is: look, no matter what, no matter what you're eating right now, we can all agree that we ought to be eating more plants and less meat. Whether you're still eating bacon, whether you're still eating ice cream, everybody can agree around you know the concept of putting more plant-based foods on our plate. Some of us are going to go all the way. A lot of people are going to go all the way. Millions of us are going to become vegan and, and fully plant-based. Some of us are going to eat only raw foods. Um, but no matter what we're eating, we can all eat more plants. Mm. So as, as I was looking at some of the, the quotes, you know, so again, this, uh, this part of my brain that I'm not particularly proud of was like, you know, like Jamie Oliver, you hypocrite, like, you know, this stuff, and yet you still cook with meat and, you know, sort of 
like, how do you think about those people who are still contributing in very public ways to massive amounts of meat consumption coming on board? Like, are you are you hoping that, that they're going to have some sort of uh, existential crisis or like do you like how do you how do you compartmentalize and understand their contributions? Yeah, you know, I think about somebody like Dr. Oz. Um, you know, Dr. Oz did a show recently on um, plant-based protein. He also did one recently on chicken protein, you know, that was kind of pro-chicken protein in a lot of ways, pro-chicken meat. Um, I think that I wanted to incorporate voices from people who come at it from different angles and in different ways from people who are not all vegan or not all plant-based as specifically as a way to, I guess, encourage omnivores to read the book and to encourage them to realize that it doesn't have to be all or nothing, encourage them to realize that there are other people like them out there who may be eating meat right now, but who at least support the idea of eating more plant-based foods. And my hope is that once they see the book and they look through the recipes and, you know, there are more than 80 recipes in there from, you know, seitan kebabs to chickpea salad and waffles and pancakes and kind of everything else you could imagine. My hope is that when they look through the book, um, you know, they flip through it and they think, all right, you know, hey, if Dr. Oz, you know, who's a meat eater, Wolfgang Puck, who's a meat eater, endorses this, maybe it's something that might appeal to me. But then when they look through the book and they see the recipes, they'll think, oh, yeah, there's something to this. I'm going to go try this chickpea salad instead of chicken salad tomorrow and just kind of open them up a little bit more to the idea of plant-based foods. Because mm. I, I, I had a, uh, an interview that I released a couple weeks ago with uh, my friend Rody Hawkins, who was the, uh, the inventor of Lunchables. And ah. Slim Jims, and he just founded a plant-based protein company, uh, Improved Nature. And we, we, you know, we met and we had a chat. And he's at this point quite resistant to my views on, like, the health impact of meat. Like he comes out of the meat industry, and yet he's still like, well, you know, this, this, like, meat is unsustainable for humans. Yeah. Um, you know, I think a lot of people have that idea. Um, and it's, it's decreasing though. Um, the, the number of times we see that argument, I think in the, in the ways in which we see that argument are slowly diminishing, you know, and you've got people like, uh, you know, the, the, the former CEO of McDonald's, Don Thompson is now on the board of directors of beyond meat, you know, vegan meat company. Mm-hmm. Um, Brian sweat, the former chairman of Burger King, you know, the King of burgers, he went on to found a company called Sweet Earth Foods. It's an entirely plant or mostly plant-based protein company, you know, with plant-based bacon and all kinds of other products. Um, you know, we see, you know, Tyson Foods, the biggest meat company on the entire planet, is now investing in Beyond Meat. They're investing in plant-based proteins. Their CEO, Tom Hayes, had a quote recently in the news saying they're openly disrupting themselves by working on plant-based protein. Hormel Foods, the maker of Spam, of all products, is now moving on plant-based proteins in their product category. Cargill, another major meat producer, recently got out of the cattle feeding business entirely to make room for focusing more on plant-based protein. So you've got these like titans of the meat industry, whether individuals or companies, getting out of meat or at least focusing less on meat and more on plants. And it gives me great hope that um, you know, people who have that mentality all across the world will will also come along and realize there's a lot to be gained from this. Awesome. That's a, that's a great note to end on. But I want to end on a different, different note, which is tell me about one of your favorite recipes. In the book. Yeah. Um, oh, my gosh. Uh, I mean, honestly, I, I wrote the book, so it's I'm biased. But I, you know, I love all the recipes in there. 
you know, did, you, did you do the food photography? No, you know, I worked with a, a fantastic photographer who um, was at the time based in Germany and is now living in, in Australia, um, but fantastic food photographer. Her name is Jessica Prescott. No relation to me. Um, same last name, though, but I highly recommend people check her work out. She's got a book out of her own um, called Holy Goodness. And uh, yeah, she, she does great work. But I think my favorite Oh, man, you know, one of my favorite recipes in there, and I'm not a sweets guy. I'm, I don't have a huge sweet tooth, but there's this coconut basbusa cake that's a Middle Eastern cake made with semolina flour and simple syrup and coconut flakes and, and almonds that I think is just tremendous and just really moist and wonderful. And even as somebody who doesn't love sweets and doesn't eat a ton of dessert, um, you know, anytime I make that, I just can't keep my hands off it. Nice. And like, this, this totally is a book. For, for omnivores who, who want an entree, a transitional entree into this lifestyle, right? Like if you were, if I were to cook any of the things for this book for, for my friends who are completely, like they'll come over now and they'll, they'll be like, all right, you know, great, we're going to have, you know, the, the, the broccoli and kale salad. And they'll be like, oh, yeah, this is good. This is better than I thought it was. But it's not going to light them up like, like a lot of these recipes will. Yeah, you know, I've got a lot of friends who who are meat eaters who aren't plant based, and they've been sending me pictures of of dishes that they've been making. I had a friend just yesterday who is, who is an omnivore who does eat meat send me a picture of the um, of the lentil beet burgers from the recipe. Bloody beet burgers are called, I think, in the cookbook, and um, she loves them. She's been making them. Um, she's had the recipe for a little while. She's been making them for her and her, her husband, who is also not vegan. And, you know, I hope that through recipes like that, that are just, yeah, they're plant-based, but it's also just delicious food. Um, you know, be, aside from the fact that it's vegan, aside from the fact that it's better for you and more sustainable, it's just delicious. Um, I, I hope that those recipes will open people up to the idea of plant-based eating, you know, at, at least in part, if not in full. Right. Awesome. So uh, the book came out last week. What Are there any exciting um media or other sort of opportunities for you that are that other are, than this other than that i mean oh this is obviously the 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 apogee but uh you know any you know um you know what's what's what kind of opportunities do you see for yourself in the next few days and weeks and months to to spread this message widely yeah well you know i just found out that um costco has um, taken on a, a quantity of the books and so they're now available at costco's i think every costco nationwide and that to me, because it's a grocery store, is incredibly exciting because people can go and they can pick up the book and then they can buy ingredients right there and make the food. Um, Costco also just started selling a new what they're calling a bleeding vegan burger. It's kind of like a raw ground beef type patty, kind of like Beyond Meat, but made by a company called Donley Farms um, that, that cooks up just like beef does. Uh, they're not selling that at Costco nationwide. And so I just love the idea of like somebody going into a Costco, buying a copy of the book, getting one of those burgers, going home, cooking it and thinking, wow, plant-based food, who would have thought? And so I, I think there's tremendous opportunity there. I, you know, to plug Costco, I guess if, you know, people are members, I would encourage them to go out and pick up the book there to show support for this type of, um, this type of eating and this type of book so that companies want to sell more of this type of stuff in the future. That's great. Cause um, you know, my friend, Eric O'Gray, uh, had a book walking with Petey that was in a bunch of Costco's, but it wasn't in mine. And I just I, every time I went, I would like look on the show, on the uh, on the stacks because I wanted to say, "Oh, look, here's my friend's book." But now, 
Now I can. Yeah, go check it. Go go check out your Costco. I hope my book will be there. And if it is, pick up some ingredients while you're there and and get cooking. Awesome. Will do. Well, Matthew Prescott, author of Food is the Solution. It's been a delight to get to know you and to talk to you and to and to to see kind of your clarity and vision and energy and and this this vast orchestra of of plant forward folks that you've uh, you've you've put together to to help the movement. Yeah, thanks. And I'm a huge fan of your podcast, too. So it was a thrill to get this request to be on it. Um, You know, I encourage everybody to check out your other episodes. You do great work and um, just, uh, yeah, keep uh, keep getting the word out there. All right. Well, I'm 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 touched. And, uh, you know, next time you see, you know, Keegan and uh, Pam and uh, Moby and everyone just say hello for me. Yeah, the whole time. Anytime the gang all gets together, I'll tell me say hi. (laughs) Cool. All right. Thank you so much. Yeah. Take care. If you enjoyed this episode of the Plant Yourself podcast and you'd like to support the mission of the show, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. I haven't gotten a review in a month or so, and it's kind of weird because they usually come in, you know, one or two a week. So if you've been holding off, now's your time to uh, to make a real difference. For information about the Big Change Program slash Wellstart Health, led by me and Josh Lajani, visit BigChangeProgram.com or WellStartHealth.com. We're not quite merged, but every day we're getting closer. And be sure to check out the show notes for today's episode with links to everything we talked about at PlantYourself.com slash 260. If you're new to the show, you can catch up on 259 archived episodes over at PlantYourself.com. And while you're there, why not sign up for the weekly-ish newsletter, The Big Change Bulldog. In addition to that iTunes review, you can also support the show by sharing this and other episodes on social media and becoming a patron of the show with an ongoing contribution. And you can do that at plantyourself.com. Just look for the Patreon link in the right sidebar. In gardening news, one of our neighbors wrote on nextdoor.com that he was getting rid of a, a large sort of a plastic, hard plastic pond liner. So we raised our hands, brought it home, and now I'm in the middle of digging a hole for it so we can have some more aquatic life. Um, water lilies, lotuses, some koi fish, I don't know, whatever uh, ends up finding its way into there that wants to live there and be happy. Uh, we've also got the little greenhouse working overtime, and we have a, a morning and evening procession where we take all the seedling trays out in the morning and bring them back in the evening because it still gets below freezing. In running news, I'm taking another week off after the marathon, and I'm just going to be walking around the land, checking things out, watching spring begin to slowly emerge and get my legs back. I've got a uh, almost marathon planned for the Umstead 100. Uh, Josh Lajani and a bunch of friends are coming up from Louisiana to run about 45 minutes from me in a park in Raleigh, and it's a 100-mile race, and it's eight 12-and-a-half-mile loops, and I volunteered to pace for two of those. So that'll be 25 miles just shy of a marathon. That'll be in a couple of weeks. All right, time for the thank you parts. Thanks to Will Ridenauer, as always, for allowing me to use his beautiful chorus song, Sabali Dawn, Dance of Peace. Check out willridenauer.com for more of his gorgeous music. Thanks to all of you Plant Yourself podcast patrons. Let's see how many breaths it takes me to declare my love and gratitude. 
Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Mara, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherley, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Barons, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Tina Ahern, Jen Volkanovsky, David Bysak, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Victoria Dolomanova, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Andrew, Josina, Julianne Rowland, Stu Donlick, Sarah Durkis, Runs of Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Leanne Peterson, Janet Selby, Claire Adams, Tom Franzek, Jeanette Bedham, Gil, Lassert, David Donahue, Blair Cyber, Doron Avizov, Gio and Callan, Ajitati, Jody Friesner, Ruth Ann Funderburg, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck, The Equally Mysterious Tracy Z, Alicia Lemus, Rebecca. Rebecca Hughes, Val Lindemann, Rise Cinnamon, Nick Harper, Stephanie Holmes, Martha Bergner, Nicole Ramsey, Susan Ahmad, Molly Levine, The Inscrutable, Harry R. Susan Laverty, The Panda Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Sharp, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Ashley Corker, and Kelly Machia, Deanne Norton, Bonnie Lynch, and Plant Happy Oregon, Samin Kurtzels, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Copel, Shell Rutledge, Julian Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Brian Sheridan, Shannon Hirschman, Kate Roseland, Ayat, Julie Lang, Holm Hedegaard, Isa Tuzin, Wak, Honey Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis, Aviva Lael, Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Olakoski of Plant Power for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Moreni, Karen, and Joe Crabtree. <laughs> Tanya Lewis, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, Kelly Baker, Miracle, and Jesse Sherry Dwyer for your generous support of the podcast. Do you hear how much space I have in that third breath? That could be your name. So uh, again, plantyourself.com slash Patreon or patreon.com slash plantyourself. Either one will help you help me. That's it for this week's. As always, be well, my friends. Mm-hmm.